He's turning over a new leaf. She's mending her ways. He's wiping the slate clean. She's getting a fresh start. I'm putting the past behind me. I'm changing for the better. I'm starting a new life. Uh, we hear these phrases from people we know who have decided to live or act in a more responsible way. Uh, maybe you've used such a phrase yourself in the past. Uh, perhaps in our Christian circles, we're more likely to hear, I'm rededicating my life to Christ. Uh, I'm going to walk the straight and narrow. I'm getting back on the right path. Well, each of these phrases, right, they convey a, this idea of a changed life. What once marked the old life, the old ways of thinking and behaving are over. And now there's new thoughts, new motives, new behaviors. But is such change really possible? Can people really decide to change? More important, what is the kind of change that God wants? How do people change? Uh, the main idea I want us to believe this morning, or this evening, I should say, is to put off the old self and to put on the new self through the truth that is in Jesus Christ. But how would Paul teach us to live this new life? What does it mean to put off the old and put on the new? That's what I want us to see this evening. So if you're not there already, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. You'll find that on page 978 of the Pew Bibles. And I want us to see the foundation of the new life in verses 17 through 24, and then the features of the new life in verses 25 through 32. First, the foundation of the new life. Uh, in the first three chapters of this letter, uh, Paul explains the Ephesians' new life in Christ and the implications of that new life. Now, Ephesians 4, verse 1, however, signals a major break in the letter. And now Paul exhorts the Ephesians to put the doctrine into practice. And even the type of verbs used uh, signal uh, this. Chapters 1 through 3 are full of indicative verbs. These are statements of fact. And then chapters 4 through 6 are dominated with imperatives or commands. And so you have a way to life in chapters 1 through 3, and then you have a, a way of life in chapters 4 through 6. And the therefore in verse 17 picks up where he left off in verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 4. In this previous section before this, he encouraged the church to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Now, beginning with verse 17, he describes a particular kind of walk that they must avoid. Uh, they simply cannot continue in a lifestyle characteristic of their past, if, as if none of the things mentioned in Ephesians 1 through 3 never happened. And his command is, very simply, don't walk as the Gentiles do. See that there in verse 17. And here, the Gentiles refers to unbelievers. So you have Gentile Christians who are urged not to live like Gentile non-Christians. And so in Paul's mind, uh, these Gentiles are now pagans, and the church is the new Israel. Uh, and as God's new people, Christians must no longer walk in the old way. So friends, I submit to you that our problem isn't getting the world to live like Christians. Uh, our main problem is getting Christians to not live like the world. That's the real burden of the apostle here. You've got to be different. You can't walk in that old way anymore. You can't get sucked into this immoral lifestyle. You can't get sucked back into your old pagan ways. 
And by the way, if you think this is just Paul talking, uh, look at verse 17 again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. By the way, he says, I'm passing on this information from the Lord. I testify in the Lord. He is speaking. This is God's standard, not mine. This is the mind of Christ. And so now having seen this command in verse 17, let us now look at four characteristics of the old walk. Uh, First, intellectually unproductive. You see it there? Uh, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Futile means empty, uh, characterized by folly, pointlessness. Their behavior yields no lasting satisfaction. All the endeavors that they put forth to obtain happiness and satisfaction end in disappointment. They're also, verse 18, darkened in their understanding. The light has gone out in the Gentiles' understanding so that they are no longer capable of apprehending biblical truth. And this is a stunning statement given uh, an unbeliever's the universal belief that they are the ones who are enlightened and have insight into the meaning of life and its values. Second characteristic, they're spiritually separated. Verse 18 again, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've been alienated from the life of God, separated from the eternal spiritual life that God alone can bestow. This is why in chapter 2, Paul referred to unbelievers as dead in their trespasses and sins. No matter how vital, healthy, active, and productive someone may appear to be, if they do not know the Lord Jesus, then they are severed from the only life that is truly and eternally life. Paul gives two reasons for this exclusion. It's because of the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance is no excuse for unbelief. These Gentiles are are morally culpable for their ignorance. They cannot blame their ignorance on anyone other than themselves. It is in them. And second, it's because of their hardness of their hearts. At the very center of their thinking, their feeling, their acting, they have hardened themselves to God and to the knowledge of Him that was available to them. There's a stubborn and a willful resistance. And apart from God's grace, they will remain unmoved by the truth. Third characteristic, they're morally insensitive. Verse 19, they have become callous. They cease to feel the reality of their condition. They lack moral sensitivity. They're unable to feel shame. They have an incapacity to feel embarrassed for their conduct. Their consciences are so atrophied that sin registers no stab of pain. And fourth, therefore, as a consequence, they are behaviorally depraved. They have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Note that they are fully and freely responsible for this condition. They have given themselves over to this behavior. Their depravity is not something that has overtaken them contrary to their consent, but is the product of their own sinful volition. And their depravity is marked by two sins in particular. You have sensuality and every kind of impurity. So, right? so it's, it's more than just sexual impurity. And this impurity has been pursued with greed. They never get enough impure activity. Their hunger for sin is a bottomless pit. They're never satisfied. They're always aching and desperate for more. They are compelled by their own wickedness to find new perversions to replace the old. It is hard 
to exaggerate the importance of admitting our old condition to be this bad. If we think of ourselves as basically good, or even less than totally at odds with God, our grasp of God's work in redemption will be defective. But if we humble ourselves under this terrible truth of our total depravity, we'll be in a position to see and appreciate and receive God's amazing grace. So now having seen the command and the characteristics, we see a contrast in verses 20 through 24 between the old walk and the new walk, the old self and the new self. And now Paul gives four contrasting characteristics. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Instead of being intellectually unproductive, believers are Christ-centered and purposeful. They've learned Christ. It's not the way you learned rules, but the way you learned Christ. New life centers on Christ, his sinless life, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his present reign, his promised return. We have turned to a person, Jesus, our Redeemer, and not to a program, not to a 12 steps, not to a theory, not to experience. We place our trust in the transforming power and person of Jesus Christ as our only hope to change our hearts. And that is the only hope for the calloused, the, co- the confused, the cut-off people. It's to become disciples or learners of Jesus. And second, instead of being ignorant of the truth, believers know the truth. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So through the gospel, truth, God reveals the depths of our sin, the scope of our depravity, and the breadth, length, height, and depth of God's grace. Believers have come to know the one who is full of grace and truth. And there are no truly God-honoring lives, no true freedom from our desperate condition apart from the truth that is in Jesus. Third, instead of having no moral conscience, believers are sensitive to sin. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Believers know what it is to be corrupt. They used to be that way. We know the result of deceitful desires. And so we're sensitive to our sin. We don't flaunt our sin. The real subjects of the kingdom mourn over their sin. They don't gloss it over. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, then we give evidence that we are the ones who are truly forgiven. A true Christian acknowledges his sin and is sensitive to it. Paul was never so sensitive to sin until he became a Christian. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That wasn't one experience. It was his whole way of life. So the believer, we are sensitive to sin and we put it off. And then fourth, instead of a, of a reprobate mind, believers have a renewed mind. Instead of being behaviorally depraved, they are behaviorally distinct. Verses 23 to 24. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the image of God in man, distorted by sin, is being recreated anew. And God is not only the author of this recreation, he is its pattern or model. We are being renewed, literally, according to God, 
right? To be like him. And so believers actively put on true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, don't trust your feelings. Renew your minds with the truth. When some Christians come to verses 20 through the 24, they argue that the old has already been put off and the new already put on. But that is a failure to understand the already and the not yet of Paul's theology, the indicative and the imperative. Yes, we are new. But it's also true that we need to put off what's been put off. And we need to put on what's been put on. We can't go for a simplistic understanding. We must appropriate what is true in our lives. How to correlate the indicative and the imperative is important for understanding the Christian life. If you emphasize the uh, indicative, you become antinomian, lawless. If you emphasize the imperative, then you might become a legalist. But if you emphasize both intention, you're balanced and you're gospel-centered. It's neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, right? Both together. Paul never forgets the indicatives with the imperatives. And so when we come to verses 25 through 32, we need to remind ourselves that these, these commands that we're about to read are rooted in the indicative. You've, you're a new person in Christ. So now let's consider those verses. Turn our attention there to, we've seen the foundation of the new life, right? It's receiving the truth that is in Jesus. And now we see six features of the new life of holiness and righteousness. And most of them come to us as two-part commands, right? We're to stop doing one thing and start doing another. And brothers and sisters, this is instructive. Uh, Paul often speaks of putting off and putting on. We need to put most of our emphasis on putting on. Uh, we move from sin to the Savior, from evil to good, from repentance to faith. Many people don't know how to move to God. They think it's let go and let God. Uh, that's not what Paul says to do in these verses. Oh, you're habitually stealing from others to make ends meet? Let go and let God. No. He tells them to do something in place of stealing, to get busy doing something God-glorifying. If you just try to stop doing a particular sin without moving to God, you'll just replace that sin with another sin and then become proud of not doing the first sin. Our emphasis has to be on pursuing the right rather than trying to stop the wrong. The Bible does not teach us to break habits. It teaches us to repent and to believe and to replace habits. We need to put off vice and put on virtue. So let's look at these six features briefly. First, he says, replace lying with truth-telling. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Revelation 21.8 says that all liars' portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. People who go to heaven are liars. So put away lying. Speak the truth with his neighbor. That's a quote from Zechariah 8, verse 16. And so the spirit of truth takes the word of truth and leads the people of God into the truth so that they will tell the truth. We don't shade it. We don't exaggerate it. We don't hide it. We tell the truth because the unity of the church depends upon it. We are members one of another. Second, 
Replace unrighteous anger with righteous anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger is a displeasure, possibly even a hatred, over someone or something violating a standard of right and wrong. And this anger might be in accordance with God's law or it might be part of one's own man-made law. Anger always involves our thoughts, our affections, intentions. It's not neutral energy that we just redirect. And good personal life-on-life counsel can help reveal if your anger is righteous or unrighteous. Uh, How else can you tell if your anger is righteous? Well, one gauge given here is its duration. When anger lasts a day, a week, a decade, a lifetime, something has gone wrong. When anger settles into bitterness and hostility, the devil wins the game. Paul states the principle memorably, don't let the sun go down on your anger. To do so is sin. We must be careful when we're against something to not let it consume us or we'll just cease to be a joyful Christian. Third, replace stealing with sharing. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Underneath the sin of stealing are two other sins, laziness and greed. And these must also be replaced. Laziness with laboring and greed with generosity. Don't be like Robin Hood. (laughs) We work to give to others. Pay your taxes, work hard, give generously, imitate Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Fourth, replace corrupting speech with constructive speech. Verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We, we ought to have a good work ethic, but we also need to have a good word ethic. Our words must be controlled. Self-control isn't automatic, and so we have to think before we speak what we're going to say, how we're going to say it, why we're going to say it, when we're going to say it, and to what effect we'll say it. Our words must not be corrupt. We are to watch what comes out, that it doesn't stink. Our words must be constructive. Sometimes they must be critical. Uh, Words of rebuke, correction. Our words may not always have to be necessarily positive in its content, but always positive in its direction. Our words must be considerate, right? According to the need. That fits the occasion. A timely word, suitable to the moment. Right? Not an indiscriminate pep talk or a hallmark greeting. Our words ought to convey grace. We must let our words be uh, favor-giving, life-giving, refreshing words that strengthen and sustain others in their lives. And our words must be consecrated. Careless, self-centered speaking causes sorrow to the Spirit of God, which is our next consideration. Replace grieving the Holy Spirit with glorifying the Holy Spirit. Now this one is not a two-part command, but it's implied, right? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The electricity that runs through wires to give us light is impersonal, 
the wind that blows is impersonal. They don't mind if we turn them off or stand against them. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit. He isn't merely a power. He truly is a person. And he's the one who's sealed us. This language indicates possession. He brand cattle to indicate the owner of the cattle. And so the sealing indicates we belong to God through Jesus Christ. And the promise then is that because we have been sealed, we will not fail to be his in the end. We will be saved. And so it's very personal. Why would you grieve someone who has been so kind to you? Why would you grieve Mr. Jones who bailed you out of jail and gave you a down payment on your home? That's what the Spirit has done in far greater measure. Lastly, replace malice with mercy. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We might excuse ourselves for these sins listed in verse 31. I don't commit all those. I'm not wrathful or angry or malicious. But consider what we often miss as legitimate manifestations. Being impatient or irritable with others is a sign of malice. A malicious person might be angry with other people because they are concerned that their own schedule or plans are being ruined. Malicious people are often inflexible on preference issues. Worst case, they actively belittle an image bearer of God, or even worse, a brother or sister in the Lord. But mercy is more than just an act. It is a disposition of the heart. We don't just need to show mercy, we need to be merciful in our affections, our tender-hearted, it says, towards one another. And this is rooted in God's own mercy towards us. Church, we cannot in malice withhold mercy from anyone as though they don't deserve it, since mercy is by definition undeserved. We need to, in love, extend mercy to others since we have received great mercy from the Lord. Maybe you're here tonight and you sense a longing for this kind of life. But if you're honest, your life looks like the wrong half of this list. Well, friend, your hope is in the end of verse 32, as God in Christ forgave you. Every sin you've committed, God can forgive. Not because you can meet his perfect standards, but because he loves his son who perfectly met those standards. And so in Christ, you can be forgiven and made new. So let us all turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and put off the sin that so easily entangles, and put on the righteousness of our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, which so clearly teaches us the way to live. May we put off the old self and put on the new self through the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Lord, if there are anyone here tonight who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, would you give them new life through the preaching of your word, by your spirit, for the glory of your great name. We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.